Hello, and welcome again to the Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, along with Sarah Moore, to present the September 2013 issue. We are pleased to announce that the podcast is now available in Portuguese, in addition to English, Spanish, and Chinese. This reflects the increasingly international reach of the journal and should be of particular interest among our readers in Brazil. Sarah, let's get started with our first paper. Our editor's choice paper this month is Individualized PEEP Setting in Subjects with ARDS, a Randomized Controlled Pilot Study by Pintado and colleagues. They conducted a pilot study to evaluate the effect of setting an individualized level of PEEP at the highest compliance on oxygenation, multiple organ dysfunction, and survival in subjects with ARDS. Subjects with ARDS ventilated with low tidal volumes and limitation of airway pressure to 30 centimeters of water were randomized to either a compliance-guided PEEP group or an FiO2-guided group. Subjects in the compliance-guided group showed non-significant improvements in PaO2 to FiO2 ratio during the first 14 days and in 28-day mortality. Multiple organ dysfunction-free days, respiratory failure-free days, and hemodynamic failure-free days at 28 days were significantly lower in subjects with compliance-guided setting of PEEP. The authors concluded that, in patients with ARDS, protective mechanical ventilation with PEEP application according to the highest compliance was associated with less organ dysfunction and a strong, non-significant trend toward lower mortality. The use of PEEP is intended to maintain alveolar recruitment. However, no method of adjusting the optimal PEEP has been shown to be superior or to improve clinical outcomes. This is a randomized controlled study to evaluate the effect of setting an individualized level of PEEP at the highest compliance. Subjects with ARDS were randomized to either a compliance-guided PEEP group or an FiO2-guided group. Multiple organ dysfunction-free days, respiratory failure-free days, and hemodynamic failure-free days were significantly lower in subjects with compliance-guided setting of PEEP. Keenan and Dries suggest that this approach is clinically feasible but more labor-intensive than following the PEEP FiO2 table developed by the ARDS Network Study Group. That may be true, but compliance-based PEEP titration is less labor-intensive than many other strategies that have been suggested for this purpose. Next, we have two papers related to ALS. The first, by Vandenberg et al., is Absence of airway secretions accumulation predicts tolerance of non-invasive ventilation in subjects with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. They assessed factors that predict good tolerance of non-invasive ventilation in order to improve survival and quality of life in subjects with ALS. The primary endpoint was NIV tolerance at one month. Subjects were classified as tolerant or poorly tolerant according to the number of hours of NIV use, more or less than four hours per night, respectively. 81 subjects, 73 of whom also attended the one-month follow-up visit, participated over 34 months. NIV tolerance after the first day of utilization predicted tolerance at one month. Multivariate analysis disclosed three factors predicting good NIV tolerance. 
absence of airway secretions accumulation prior to NIV onset with an odds ratio of 11.5, normal bulbar function at initiation of NIV with an odds ratio of 8.5, and older age with an odds ratio of 1.1. The authors conclude that their study reveals three factors that are predictive of good NIV tolerance, in particular the absence of airway secretions accumulation, which should prompt NIV initiation before its appearance. Respiratory Outcomes of Patients with Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis, an Italian nationwide survey, is by Vitaka et al. They surveyed attitudes and practice in Italy on ALS and other neuromuscular diseases. A questionnaire on ALS and neuromuscular disease management was mailed to 178 pneumology units, which were classified into high-volume and low-volume centers according to the number of patients followed in the last five years. There was a 43% response rate, and the responding units had 1,772 patients with ALS and 1,490 patients with neuromuscular disease. Difficulty clearing respiratory secretions and disturbed sleep were the main reasons the patients with ALS were referred to the pneumology units. Vital capacity measured in the sitting position and arterial blood gases were measured regularly, while respiratory muscle function and cough ability were routinely assessed in over 85% of the pneumology units, and 94% of pneumology units could provide non-invasive ventilation. Treatment of neuromuscular disease was similar to that of ALS, except for tracheostomy, which was less frequently performed in patients with neuromuscular disease. A multidisciplinary team approach to care was employed in approximately 90% of the responding pneumology units. Approximately one-third of the units accessed palliative care services. Combined pulmonary function evaluation, long-term non-invasive ventilation, and assisted cough have become usual practices for ALS patients. Italian practices for ALS did not significantly differ from the approach to other neuromuscular diseases. In the study by Vandenberg, multivariate analysis identified three factors predicting good NIV tolerance. Absence of airway secretion accumulation, normal bulbar function, and older age. Although these data should not be used to select patients for treatment with NIV, it does identify patients who may require closer monitoring and a more aggressive approach to airway clearance therapy. In the survey of Italian practice related to ALS care by Vitaccia, it was found that vital capacity and arterial blood gases were measured regularly, respiratory muscle function and cough ability were routinely assessed in more than 85% of the units, and 94% of the units provided NIV. In their editorial, Abu Suwan and Morales Capodavila remind us that improved survival and improved quality of life are now well-established benefits of NIV, in part due to the increased use of NIV in these patients. More patients with progressive neuromuscular disease live longer with better quality of life and in their homes. Our next two papers deal with humidification in tracheostomized patients.
Humidification performance of humidifying devices for tracheostomide patients with spontaneous breathing, a bench study, is by Chikata and colleagues. They carried out a bench study to investigate the effects of spontaneous breathing parameters and oxygen flow on the humidification performance of 11 HMEs. They evaluated the humidification provided by 11 HMEs for tracheostomized patients and also a system delivering high-flow CPAP and an oxygen mask with nebulizer heater. Spontaneous breathing was simulated with a mechanical ventilator, lung model, and servo-controlled heated humidifier at tidal volumes of 300, 500, and 700 milliliters and breathing frequencies of 10 and 20 breaths per minute. Expired gas was warmed to 37 degrees Celsius. The high-flow CPAP system was set to deliver 15, 30, and 45 liters per minute. With the eight HMEs that were equipped with ports to deliver oxygen and with the high-flow CPAP system, measurements were taken while delivering zero and three liters per minute of dry oxygen. After stabilization, they measured the absolute humidity of inspired gas with a hygrometer. Absolute humidity differed among HMEs applied to tracheostomized patients with spontaneous breathing. For all the HMEs, as tidal volume increased, absolute humidity decreased. At 20 breaths per minute, absolute humidity was higher than at 10 breaths per minute. For all the HMEs, when oxygen was delivered, absolute humidity decreased to below 30 mg per liter. With an oxygen mask and high-flow CPAP at all settings, absolute humidity exceeded 30 mg per liter. The authors concluded that none of the HMEs provided adequate humidification when supplemental oxygen was added. In the ICU, caution is required when applying HME to tracheostomized patients with spontaneous breathing, especially when supplemental oxygen is required. A novel, simplified, ex vivo method for measuring water exchange performance of heat and moisture exchangers for tracheostomy application is by Vandenboer and colleagues. The aim of this study was to develop a simple method to measure the ex vivo HME performance comparable with previous in vitro and in vivo results. HMEs were weighed at the end of inspiration and at the end of expiration at different breathing volumes. Four HMEs with known in vivo humidity and in vitro water loss values were tested. The associations between weight change, volume, and absolute humidity were determined using both linear and nonlinear mixed effect models. The rating between the four HMEs by weighing correlated with previous intratracheal measurements and the ISO standard. The authors concluded that assessment of the weight change between end of inhalation and end of exhalation is a valid and simple method of measuring the water exchange performance of an HME. Although HMEs are applied to spontaneously breathing patients with tracheostomy, their performance in this setting is not clear. In the study by Chiquita et al., Absolute humidity differed among HMEs applied to tracheostomized patients with spontaneous breathing, it decreased when tidal volume increased, and it increased at a higher respiratory rate. When oxygen was used, absolute humidity decreased to less than 30 mg per liter for all of the HMEs. These data suggest caution when applying HMEs to tracheostomized spontaneously breathing patients. 
Vandenborg and colleagues report a novel, simplified ex vivo method for measuring water exchange performance of HMEs with tracheostomy application. They found that assessment of the weight change between end of inhalation and end of exhalation is a valid and simple method of measuring the water exchange performance of an HME. Suquemel and Laloche point out that this method is original and relatively simple, and it may be useful for HME evaluation. However, additional validations of other hygroscopic methods and with other HMEs is required. Our next paper is Bronchodilator Delivery During Simulated Pediatric Non-Invasive Ventilation by White and colleagues. The authors hypothesized that there would be no differences in albuterol delivery with the vibrating mesh nebulizer between three different positions and exhalation leak valve combinations in the patient's circuit during simulated pediatric NIV. A simulated upper airway model was attached to the lung model that simulated spontaneous breathing. A non-invasive ventilator, equipped with heated wire circuit and heated humidifier, was attached to the lung model via a pediatric oronasal mask. Albuterol was delivered with a vibrating mesh nebulizer at three different circuit positions leak condition combinations, prior to the humidifier and leak valve, between the humidifier and leak valve, and integrated within the mask and after the leak. Albuterol was captured on a filter and quantified with chromatography. Greater albuterol mass was delivered to the filter with the nebulizer integrated into the mask than at any other testing condition. In the conditions where the nebulizer was placed prior to the exhalation leak valve, greater drug delivery was observed when the nebulizer was placed proximal to the mask than when placed prior to the humidifier. The authors conclude that albuterol delivery during simulated pediatric NIV was affected by the position of the nebulizer in relation to the expiratory leak valve and the nebulizer's distance from the filter. A vibrating mesh nebulizer placed intramask may provide a better alternative for medication delivery than those previously used during pediatric NIV. NIV is usually applied using bi-level positive airway pressure devices, and many of these devices use a single-limb patient circuit with an integrated leak port. Sometimes bronchodilator therapy is indicated in pediatric patients receiving NIV, but there have been no studies of the optimal nebulizer position with respect to leak during pediatric NIV. White and colleagues found that greater albuterol mass was delivered with the nebulizer integrated into the mask than with any other testing condition. This informs practice and suggests that a vibrating mesh nebulizer placed in the mask may provide a better alternative for medication delivery. CPAP and bi-level positive airway pressure are the gold standard treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, but these therapies are not well tolerated. In their paper, CPAP adherence of patients with obstructive sleep apnea, Celepsi and colleagues prospectively assessed subjective and objective adherence and factors that affect adherence in patients with OSA. Subjects using CPAP or BPAP were questioned about adverse effects of these therapies and were assessed with the Epworth Sleepiness Scale at the 1st, 3rd, 6th, and 12th months, and once every 6 months after the first year.
CPAP or BPAP use and objective and subjective adherence were assessed. Subjects who use CPAP or BPAP for at least four hours per night for at least 70% of the days monitored were regarded as adherent and those who didn't were considered non-adherent. The relationship between adherence and demographic data, polysomnography findings, Epward sleepiness scale scores and adverse effects were statistically analyzed. 648 subjects who were diagnosed with OSA by polysomnography and accepted to use CPAP or BPAP between January 2005 and June 2011 were included. 70% were men. 38% of the subjects attended follow-up. 38% were called by telephone and 24% could not be reached. Of the whole population, 64% had obtained their CPAP or BPAP machine. In the 248 subjects who attended follow-up, subjective adherence was 85% and objective adherence was 65%. Improvement in upward sleepiness scale score and satisfactory sleep were significantly higher in the adherent group. Chest discomfort, difficulty falling asleep, and sleep disturbances were significantly higher in the non-adherent group. Objective adherence was lower than the subjective adherence in subjects who attended follow-up. Younger subjects were more adherent, and the most important factors that correlated with adherence were substantial improvement of daytime sleepiness and the effect of CPAP or BPAP on satisfactory sleep. The authors concluded that CPAP and BPAP adherence should be followed with objective monitoring. The use of CPAP in patients with OSA is not always well tolerated. These authors found that, of the patients enrolled who attended follow-up sessions, subjective adherence was 85% and objective adherence was 65%. It is of interest to note that adherence was greater in younger subjects and that adherence correlated with substantial improvement of daytime sleepiness. I will now briefly comment on each of the additional original research papers in this month's issue. A bench study of two ventilator circuits during NIV with a helmet was conducted by Ferron et al. Helmet NIV with the double limb circuit showed better patient ventilator interaction. These results have implications for clinical application of NIV when a helmet is used. The benefit of pulmonary rehabilitation in patients with COPD and normal exercise capacity is reported by Lan and colleagues. They enrolled 20 subjects with COPD and normal exercise capacity. They found that exercise training can result in significant improvement in health-related quality of life, exercise capacity, respiratory muscle strength, and exertional dyspnea in subjects with COPD and normal exercise capacity. Sibylla et al. assessed the effects of prior inhaled corticosteroid use on severity of illness and microbiology in community-acquired pneumonia hospitalized patients. They found that prior inhaled corticosteroid use was associated with higher severity of illness at admission and higher incidence of antimicrobial resistant pathogens in community-acquired pneumonia hospitalized patients. Chrysofoli et al. evaluated a new scoring system for the risk of oxygen desaturation during walking in patients with COPD. 
They found that their walking desaturation score accurately predicts and classifies the risk of walking desaturation in patients with COPD. Yang and colleagues investigated factors affecting CPAP adherence in elderly patients with OSA. They found that CPAP acceptance instead of CPAP adherence is the critical issue with elderly patients with OSA. Predictors of outcome of early onset pneumonia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was assessed by Pabst et al. The rate of early onset pneumonia was not significantly influenced by the exchange of the preclinically inserted endotracheal tube, but was associated with longer need for mechanical ventilation and ICU stay. Pulmonary function and flow volume loop patterns in patients with tracheomalacia was studied by Majid and colleagues. They found that flow volume loops were normal in a substantial number of patients with moderate to severe tracheobronchiomalacia and should not be used to decide whether it is present or clinically important. Microarray expression aberration associated with bronchopulmonary dysplasia in preterm infants was investigated by Wu et al., who identified blood-based microRNAs associated with BPD. This might provide additional information regarding the roles of these biomarkers in the development of BPD in very low-weight preterm infants. In our final original research paper this month, Perot and Guerin performed a bench assessment of a new insufflation-exufflation device. They found a greater peak expiratory flow with the NIPI clearway device than with the cough assist at low respiratory system compliance, a finding that may need to be confirmed clinically. This month, we publish reviews on chest physical therapy in acute viral bronchiolitis and methodological reporting of randomized clinical trials in respiratory research in 2010. Our case reports deal with ecchymosis related to Montelukast treatment, iatrogenic tracheal stenosis presenting as persistent asthma, and hypotension, global ST segment elevation, and acute severe left ventricular systolic dysfunction during bronchoscopy. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.